Welcome to The Scrapple, the podcast dedicated to serving up a mix of all things diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. Some episodes will be serious, others will be lighter and humorous, and a few might have you questioning everything. I'm your host, Riley B. Folds. I'm a certified diversity practitioner from Cornell University with a master's in career counseling and nearly 20 years of being a change agent and social justice advocate. For today's episode, I'm joined by Molly Sikor. Molly is a writer, filmmaker, activist, and stage four cancer survivor. Named one of Nashville's most influential public intellectuals by Nashville Scene Magazine, Molly has been a vocal presence in her community and a voice on the national stage for 20 years. She is the author of White Privilege Pop Quiz, Reflecting on Whiteness. Welcome, Molly. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm so I'm so honored to be here. <laughs> and I mean that. A little backstory for the listeners. Earlier this year, I read Molly's book and thought to myself, I need to know her. So in today's world, how do you find someone you never met before? Exactly. Instagram. <laughs> Molly, you were so nice enough to actually read and reply to my DM. And thank you so much for that. In addition, when I was designing the Scrapple and outlining the episodes for season one, I knew I had to book you. Again, Molly, thank you for accepting my invitation and for all the work that you do. Well, thank you. And again, I'm always honored when someone invites me to be on their show. You know, having done this work for 20 years, I'm used to people not wanting to talk about this. So I'm always thrilled when somebody wants to talk about it. And of course, you know, the ones that read my book, of course I answered you. Oh my God, I was thrilled to get your message. <laughs> okay, let's get into it. Molly, listeners, I can't recall a time when this topic of white privilege has been discussed, criticized, and polarized more than over the last 16 months. Molly, for those unfamiliar with the term who might have had an incorrect definition drilled into their heads, can you simply define what white privilege and whiteness is? Okay, well, it's a package deal, really. If you identify as white or are perceived as white in our culture, in our society, and that's crucial because, as we know, whiteness is a construct. It's not real. I mean, this was all created with a purpose in mind. But white privilege is experiencing the benefits that come with systemic racism, systemic institutionalized systemic policies in a culture where every single system for the last several hundred years in our country was designed to offer advantages to those who deserve wealth and power and freedoms and those who do not. So whether or not you identify as white, if you're perceived as white and you experience going through your day and your life being perceived as white, you are a beneficiary of the system, whether you want it or not, whether you see it or not, whether you agree with it or not. Thanks, Molly. I believe establishing a solid foundation is important to any discussion. You mentioned that inspiration for writing the book was Trayvon Martin and all who have suffered, and I quote, violent deaths at the hands of those meant to protect and serve. In a time when every word is publicly scrutinized and at times tortured, I'm curious with the word choice of violent deaths versus murders. This is in no way a criticism. Rather, I can recall working on communications last year and having similar discussions. Can you provide some insight? Well, 
I don't know how much insight I can give you. I think they're both appropriate, but I chose violent deaths because I wanted something that described the current situation in this country, especially with the murders that are happening with police. And there was something about using the words violent death to describe because lynching has always been a part for the last several hundred years. Lynching is a violent, violent, emotional, psychological, and spiritual act committed against mostly people of color. And so I don't know that I have a great answer for choosing, but I wanted something that elicited or grabbed people's attention to say, look, it wasn't an accidental shooting, except there are circumstances where it may have been. But for the most part, people of color have been tracked. We've seen it. We know historically, we know from the stories that have passed on from generation to generation. And now with the advent of iPhones and everybody's got a camera in their pocket, we're seeing that. People of color are strategically, deliberately, and intentionally tracked and murdered. And these murders are usually pretty violent. When you hold someone down to where they can't breathe and they're gasping for their last breath, that's not just a murder. That is an act of violence against someone. And so that, that's why I chose the word. I don't know if I have a better answer than that. <laughs> no, that's great. Thank you, Molly. I'm always struck when individuals go from reflecting or talking into action. I feel that's what you did with writing this book. And I thank you so much for doing so. Can you explain why and what the journey was like for you? Oh my God. (laughs) It's such a long story, but I would say that it all started when I started working with youth at a nonprofit in Nashville. It was with at-risk youth and it was families and youth who were having problems communicating or falling behind in school or had been arrested a couple of times. And I was working, you know, at this nonprofit. And not only did I witness disparity between who we were serving and who we were as the helpers, I was like, wow, we were an 88 point, I think it was 88.8% white women at this institution. And 90% of the clients and the people we served were people of color. So that really struck me. And I started thinking about it. And then I took my summer vacation and I went to the Fisk University Race Relations Institute. And I immersed myself in this environment where I was a minority. Not only was I a minority, but I was in a minority in this group of forward-thinking, educated, very prominent people of color that would came to this conference over a week period. I mean, Nikki Giovanni was there. James Earl Jones, Chuck D, I mean, you name it. And they were all describing their experiences and they were speaking quite openly, frankly, and definitively about what it meant to be a person of color in this culture. And these are all the people who have, in the eyes of the world, have succeeded immensely. And they spoke so openly in front of me. I was one of very few white people there. And that was the biggest education I'd ever had. There was a no-holds-bar conversation about race in a way I had never experienced or heard before. And that changed me from the inside out. Thank you, Molly. I appreciate you sharing with us that detail. Thank you. You also state in the book that the intent is not to make people feel bad or guilty, but to shed a light on the continued and persistent conflict, confusion, and resentment that arises when issues of race bubble up to the surface, and more importantly, when they don't. Can you tell us more about that? Oh, gosh. Well, I've been 
in the midst of heated conversations that went nowhere for 20 years. So I have 20 years of experience of trying to articulate some of the things that I learned and experienced. And, and remember, my journey was as someone who was slowly waking up and had never really wrestled with any of these questions that I ask in the book. But, you know, the more I understood myself, and of course, I was like a, um, a converted vegetarian, I will say, at some point. You know, it was like I got it, and now I wanted to share my wisdom with the world. But I also, and I'll be very honest about this, I liked the kudos that I was getting for having the understanding and looking at this. And also, there was this very short term, but there was a time where it was like, oh, yeah, I was the white person that got it you know, that kind of thing. Because the ego is always creeping in there, trying to get in there and make yourself feel, you know, again, more important. In a way, I feel like because of that, I could experience in conversations where I was being perceived as being combative because what I was saying was counter to what people were experiencing and nobody wants to feel bad about themselves and nobody wants to feel bad about something they feel they didn't have any part in. And of course, you know, all the major deflections. I didn't have slaves. I didn't, you know, all these ways that people, and those are all just techniques to not talk about it. That's really what that saying is. I don't want to talk about it and I don't want to hear any more from you. But all this to say is that I really hadn't considered these things before. And um, I really wanted to create an environment where people were being self-reflective, because to me, that was the problem, is that white people had never had to think about it, had never had to reflect on it. And so the way that you engage people is through asking questions. And that seemed to me, it was, and when I did it from the stage and when I did it in my writing, I found that people would maybe creep in a little closer, you know, would lean in, a, not creep in, <laughs> lean in a little closer. And when you offer them a question to chew on, there's no need to react or to be defensive or, you know, how dare you? I'm not a racist, you know, all that kind of stuff. Does that answer your question? Definitely. And it's a great transition into the next question, actually, you know, digging a little deeper into the content of the book. The foundation is the white privilege quiz. And I'm interested, and I'm sure the listeners are too, what is this quiz and how did you come up with such a tool? Well, as I just said, it was me more desperate to engage people because I've always felt this passion that I wanted. I knew that if people would just understand, you know, like our part in this and that this isn't an issue for black and brown people, that all of these things that have happened were very purposeful. You know, it wasn't an accident. These were systems that were designed, brilliantly designed to create this disparity and this bifurcation. And people generally don't respond to lectures and diatribes. You know, they barely respond to something they see on TV, like January 6th. I mean, you know, you can have something in front of someone's eyes and depending on what's going on inside of them or the way they've been conditioned, they're going to interpret it as something else. And because the main reason systemic racism still exists is because white people who benefit haven't seen a need to change. There hasn't been a need to reflect. And much of this is due, again, to a lack of self-reflection and insight. So, again, I wanted to write something that posed questions, not pointing fingers. 
Yeah, no, I think that's great. And what I really loved about the book were those questions. And it kind of does break down people's defenses when you position it that way. You know, I've read many books on the topic. I think this one was really relatable and and consumable for everyone, not just people in the DEI space. Well, I really appreciate you saying that because that's, I mean, in my heart of hearts, that's all I wanted. And, you know, I wrote this book originally in 2012 after Trayvon Martin, and it didn't come out until last October. And it was, you know, having, you know, six or seven months after George Floyd. And I was like, oh my God, I wrote this book in 2012. And the same thing keeps happening over and over again. And, you know, George Floyd was Trayvon Martin in 2020. It was different circumstances. It was horrific and brutal. But really, it was however many years later, it was the same story. And how many stories? And because we know more and more, again, it's not that this has started happening. This has been happening for several hundred years. We just now have the tools to be faced with it. And I would say that it's undeniable. But as we both know, (laughs) there are plenty of people still in denial about it. Yeah, I, I think that a question can go a long way in any conversation. <laughs> Great. Now we can deep dive into the questions on the quiz. Listeners, get out your pen and papers. The first question is here. How often are you reminded about being the race in which you identify? Responses include several times a day, once a day, several times a week, once a month, or hardly ever. Let me read that again. How often are you reminded about being the race with which you identify several times a day, once a day, several times a week, once a month, or hardly ever. While the audience ponders the question and their response, I'm a firm believer in modeling, so I'll let you and the listeners know how I responded. For me, I feel like I'm somewhere between several times a week and once a month responses. However, I think I'm influenced because I sit in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space And if I wasn't, I question if I would be closer to the response of hardly ever. Can you tell us a little more behind the question and any results that you have been hearing from quiz takers? Well, I'll start out telling you that I talked about this in the book a little, but I'll give everyone a sneak preview. After I had gone to the Fisk University Race Relations Institute in 1997, I decided because I was becoming aware of all these things and someone approached me and said, so you know, now that you understand your own white privilege, what are you going to do about it? And I stumbled and just hummed and hawed and, and I explained to her, now this is after some, you know, I've really been influenced and I've been inspired and I've, the lights have gone off. And I said to them, oh, well, you know, my parents, you know, after they divorced, we went on public assistance. So, you know, I didn't really have white privilege. I was still back then insisting that I was an exception which I didn't realize was also part of my privilege. But I decided after that two weeks, because I went home, I cried every night. I was being faced with things I didn't want to think about. I didn't want to be true. I didn't want to be, you know, and I was wrestling with what that meant about me that I had never done that. And so I made a commitment that I was going to go through an entire day. Every day I was going to try, see how far I could get. I was going to remember my whiteness 24-7, all day long. I was going to see how long I could do it and be aware of every interaction I had, every phone call I had, every encounter at the supermarket or the gas station. 
I was going to sort of try to have in my brain what it meant to be. So I'm there as a white person. And I would get to like 9, 30, 10 o'clock in the morning and forget after that. I mean, I think the latest I ever got was noon. (laughs) And that was with me having made a commitment to myself to try to, you know, sort of try to see through another lens and see if I understood or if I could see it myself, because that's the problem. It's like the fish swimming in water. You can't see it. You, it's just natural. You're just, you're at home in the water. Well, white supremacy, white privilege, it's, it's the water that we're swimming in. So, you know, it was hard for me and I made it a concerted effort. I made a commitment to do it. And it was really, really tough. And, you know, I've had a lot of different responses getting to your question from people. You know, they, I haven't heard specifics, just most people saying, oh my God, I, I've just never asked myself. I don't know. I've never asked myself that question. It's never occurred to me to ask that question, which leads them down a whole other personal, you know, I, I don't want to say rabbit hole, but it is, you know, and for me, because it's in a book and it's not an ex- a live exchange that's happening, I don't know what the transformation is. All I know is occasionally I'll get a call, I'll get a, a message on Facebook, an email saying, I, my eyes have been opened and I can't believe what I'm now seeing, you know? So. Yeah, that's a great point. I think there's so much noise out there, right? To really find that time to do some of that self-reflection is super difficult for most people. And like you said, you know, you didn't make it past, you know, 9.30 or noon or whatever the time frame was. It really takes a lot of effort to do that. So kudos to you. Well, and it was just something that seemed, you know, I mean, I, I believe that we're all, and this is going to sound weird, but I always feel like there's something calling us forward. There's something, you know, in the universe that's always calling us forward or propelling us forward. And I feel like this was one of those things that I knew that my life was calling me. And part of that was me responding to it. No one told me to do this. I just felt compelled to do it. And now I realize it changed everything. You know, it changed the work I was doing. It changed the writing I was doing. I started making films with young people in prison, made documentaries. And that's how I became a documentary filmmaker. I started making videos and films with young people in prison. And most of them were black and brown. Wow. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. It's summertime, and after a long period of lockdowns, many are traveling again. You include a pop quiz extra credit question, which I love, and it asks, how often have you traveled away from home and wondered whether you would be welcome because of your racial identity? The responses are too many to count, periodically, seldom, or never. I'll read it again. How often have you traveled away from home and wondered whether you would be welcome because of your racial identity? Too many to count, periodically, seldom, or never. For me, I answered seldom and probably answered that way because I've done some extensive traveling internationally to places where I don't speak the language or fully understand some of the cultural aspects. What have you learned from this question? Well, I think it's twofold for me because I believe that a lot of what's happening right now in our country is a result of being in such a vast landmass and where you can live here your entire life and not experience another culture. 
So I think that's problem number one. I think that uh, not saying that there isn't systemic inequities and oppression in other places, of course, but there is something about having access to other people, other customs, other languages, other cultures that makes you have to really work hard to keep your vision so narrow. And we live in a country where there are a lot of people who have never traveled outside never curious about traveling outside. And if they do, they go to places that are travel destinations, perhaps, you know, that really cater to tourists. And so when they go, they've never experienced being gone. You know, they've done a, a, nothing wrong with it, but they've done a cruise on a ship and maybe dropped off at a couple ports and done some shopping. And for them, everybody welcomes you there because you're, so we don't have, we don't have a country filled with people that, understand other cultures and are embracing of them and also are curious of. And so I feel like that's, we are in the middle of some fairly big consequences because of that or experiencing. So I think the, uh, what do I want to call this? I don't want to call it a bifurcation. The, the split that we are experiencing right now, I think a lot to do is with travel. And so as a white person who's never really thought much about whether or not I would be welcomed somewhere. I've always assumed I would be. It's just something, why wouldn't I be? <laughs> why wouldn't I be? And if you don't put yourself in someone else's shoes, you aren't likely to ask that question. Does that answer your question? Yeah, that's perfect. Thank you so much. The final question I want to cover today is from chapter four. And I chose this one because I think it brings our conversation full circle. The question is, how often have you been coached or drilled by parents or family members on how to avoid appearing dangerous to law enforcement, teachers, or authority figures? And the responses are frequently, sometimes, rarely, or never. And over the last 16 months, this is something I heard a lot about over and over. So I'll read it one more time. How often have you been coached or drilled by parents or family members? on how to avoid appearing dangerous to law enforcement, teachers, or authority figures. Where I would answer never, my Black friends and associates would respond with frequently. Talk to us a little more about this. Well, part of the reason I wrote that is for obvious, obvious reasons. We all, it's hard to now be on social media, live in this country and see even a little bit of news and not understand now. Uh, people understand what's happening with police, even if you're denying it or you're, you know, shouting Blue Lives Matter. But we know it's an issue and we, we know that it's an ongoing, but something a historical, it's always been the case. Black people and brown people have always been policed violently and persistently. And you know, one of the stories that I tell when I go out and speak is that I remember when I was 19 years old, I was living in California. I was coming home from a Thanksgiving dinner with my friends where I had drank quite heavily until about 11 o'clock at night. You know, I was there for the whole Thanksgiving dinner. I was driving home. My license had expired. My plates had expired. And one of my headlights was out and I turned left on a red. Now, what do you think happened to me? <laughs> wow. I was escorted home. The cop followed me home and said, 
All right, you get in there. You have a good Thanksgiving and don't let that happen again. Wow. I didn't get a ticket for the expiration of my plates. And I take that back. My license hadn't expired. It was my plates that had expired. And I'd buy a couple of weeks, but still. And I didn't even get, I didn't get a warning. All I got was you get in the house and have a good Thanksgiving. Now, I'm not saying that I didn't appreciate this gentleman who actually could have changed the rest of my life. And I told that story at parties for years from the perspective of, you know, I can, God, I'm, you know, it's the woman telling the story about getting away with a ticket. Well, to me, it was very entertaining. And I always got, you know, engaged people until, you know, many, many, many years later, I was like, oh my God, this really could have been the end of my life as I knew it. And when I realized the day that I realized that this was the end of life for many, 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 many. There are some people that would never, you know, get outside the jail cell, you know, because once they got into jail for something like that, then something else could happen that keeps them there. So that was a huge, huge revelation for me when I realized not just how lucky I was, but how privileged I was. Mm, Yeah, great story. Thank you for sharing that. Molly, I truly believe that I could sit here all day and have a discussion with you, but we are out of time. I hope you will come back to the show. Aww. <laughs> you know, in the meantime, please remind the audience how they can get your book and connect with you. I believe it's going to be um, an audible book soon. So please tell us more. Okay. Well, you can get my book on Amazon. You may be able to get it at your local store. You can certainly order it from there. Quickest is probably going to Amazon, Parnassus Books in Nashville. I highly recommend if you're in Nashville. And even if you're not, Parnassus is an independent bookstore. I believe in supporting independent bookstores while I'm appreciative of Amazon, but those are the ways. And yes, it is coming out soon on Audible. So yes, I would love for for people, and I understand it's hard now to have the time to read a whole book or sometimes people are using their commute times to read while they're driving. So I would love to be, and it'll be my voice so we can have a chat. And I, you can reach me on mollysecours.com. If you go to my website, you can send me a message through there. And also, it's got links on there to order the books. So, yeah. Great. Thank you. And she will respond. I, I am proof that she will respond. Oh, I always respond. I always, well, I respond unless it's really, if, if it's not a nice letter. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again, Molly, for your time. I really do appreciate it. And to all the listeners, thank you. The conversation doesn't stop here. You can connect with me on Twitter at The Real Scrapple. Until next time, care for each other just a little more. Mm-hmm.